Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, host of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today, we're thrilled to bring you my conversation with Michael Silton and Alejandro Guerrero of Act One Ventures. Founded in 2015 and based in Los Angeles, the duo has closed on two funds and invests in pre-seed and seed stage enterprise B2B companies. They're also very diversity focused with over 70% of their companies led by diverse founders. And they recently introduced the widely adopted diversity rider for venture rounds, which seeks to allow more underrepresented managers to invest alongside top venture firms. This is a really fun conversation as we chatted about raising a fund with non-traditional backgrounds, turning diversity measures from discussions to tangible steps forward, and how they think about lasting partnerships. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Anduin. Anduin's platform makes fund management simple with streamlined fund operations, digitized fund subscriptions, and real-time status updates. As many investors know, traditional paper-based subscription agreements are costly, tedious, and error-prone, with up to 80% of submitted documents being incorrect or considered in poor order. This causes fund managers to be faced with a lack of visibility and an endless back and forth with investors, causing a poor onboarding experience for both the LP and the fund manager. This is where Anduin steps in as their investor onboarding workflow brings clarity and efficiency to fund subscriptions, which drastically reduce error rates and makes for happier LPs. For fund managers, the platform allows them to free up time so they can focus on what they do best, which is investing. For more information on Anduin or to arrange a demo, visit fundsub.io forward slash venture unlocked. That's fundsub.io forward slash venture unlocked. Hey guys, it's great to see you and thanks for uh, for being on this episode. Our pleasure to be here. It's been great listening to your podcasts and they've been a true spiritual guide to what we've been doing. So happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Samir. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. I, I know your backgrounds both very well, but for the listeners who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got into investing. And maybe Michael, we'll start with you. Certainly. Well, what you're going to find about Alejandro and ourselves is that we're not traditional venture capitalists. We're really founders. And we don't mean that in the sense of that we've operated companies. We mean that in the sense that we're founders inside and out. It's how we think. It's how we work. And neither of us ever expected a career in venture capital or even in finance for that matter. So both of us started our careers founding companies and we've had successes and failures. For me personally, my first company failed. My second one I sold. My third I took public and then ran for many years. So venture capital was kind of a uh, different experience and not one we ever planned for. It's funny, there's so many people on this show that took a very non-traditional accidental VCs. Alejandro, you very much have that route. Tell us how you got interested in investing and why you decided to be a VC. I don't. I can't say that I decided to be a VC. It almost kind of found me in terms of an incredible opportunity to work with Michael at the ground level. Um, and it wasn't about venture. It was about the ability to learn, to, to have an apprenticeship from someone. You know, I've been a founder for two different software startups, um, one media tech, one B2B software. Um, as the first one was running out of money, I started working on that second business. And, you know, I realized that raising capital didn't solve my problems like I thought it would in the first company, right? It, it actually compounded them. And, and I didn't come from a network of entrepreneurs or, or financiers or anything. You know, I'm a first-gen Mexican-American. Parents dropped out of school as adolescents. I've been figuring everything out pretty much my whole life. When I went back to UCLA, which is where, where I went to undergrad, 
I, I went there to look for a network. You know, I was just like, cool, I'm about to raise money again, but I, I, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. I got to build a network of people who could help guide me on this kind of stuff. So I figured out there was a venture fund at UCLA. Michael was the person running it. And that was kind of the beginning. You know, he was the first venture capitalist, quote unquote, who had only been a founder by background. And, and at least in my experience, that, that I just didn't know that that existed in the venture world. So it not that it made it better, but it, it gave us the ability to just really jam out on things that he understood firsthand. Uh, so he brought a level of empathy that I really had not felt from any venture capitalist prior to that. So that was kind of the beginning. I volunteered for him there, not because I cared about venture, really because I just wanted to be around him, be around the network to, to give advice to younger founders. And as I spent time there for three years while running my business, um, it just was amazing like to, to be able to start to build that network of folks who were willing to share the stories with somebody who was going through that process. And then, you know, luckily when I left that company in, in 2015 as CEO, luck and timing, you know, Michael was ready to leave UCLA and, and instead of doing a forced software company, he wanted to do a venture fund and, and gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to join him. Well, it's a great story. And, and, I, and I do want to go back, I guess, to, to 2015, 2016 timeframe when Act One was originally started and raised its first vehicle. Michael, what led you to wanting to start an independent firm and, and leave UCLA's uh, venture program? Uh, the UCLA Venture Fund wasn't designed to be my career. That was something that I was doing as a break between my third software company and my fourth software company. So after having run a public company that I had founded for 42 quarters, it was time for a, a break and not ready to kind of jump back into the next software startup right away. But I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur. My whole life, all I'd done a software startup. So I just knew that that was what's next. But I realized that the difference between my successes and failures hadn't been some great new skill that I'd learned away. It was really about the community and the network. And in my first startup in Santa Monica 30 years ago, Although I was a fourth generation entrepreneur, so I should just have known how to build a great company, I was able to build a product but not get any customers. And it, it became clear that my success later in Silicon Valley wasn't because I built a better product, it was because I had a better network. And even though I didn't go to Stanford, that Stanford alumni group came together and introduced me and all my great customers, IBM, Vanguard, these weren't companies that I cold called. This was some Stanford person calling another Stanford classmate who got me in the door and they were able to tell me, hey, this is how IBM decides. These are IBM's current business needs. And here's an appointment with a person who makes decisions about your product. I had to be able to follow up, have a good product, all those other things. But without that network, the success wouldn't have been there. And so I wanted to solve the problem I had as an 18-year-old and still make up for that failure. So I went back first part-time and then as a for four years as a full-time volunteer at UCLA to go build that network for UCLA to make sure that other 18-year-olds like me or whatever age they were when they were starting their companies had the support of a network to bring them those customer introductions, to bring them the advice they did. Have. So it was originally just a few years to clear my head, give back to the community, build a great network for UCLA. Is every bit of great as alumni network at Stanford? They just never been asked to help. And you know, did that. And then I was going to go start another software company. But along the way, something changed. And the first thing was 
we ended up making a lot of money for the school. The quality of the talent in Los Angeles and the UCLA alumni network was being overlooked and there was this great opportunity there. The second thing that we saw was that the network was incredibly willing to help. You just had to ask them, but they were every bit as capable and ready to help and produce you know, introductions that led to millions of dollars in revenue, great advice on how to go. And it turned out to be a lot of fun connecting people. So we were making a lot of money for the school on a return basis. It was a small fund. We were having a lot of fun connecting people and having an impact. And the third thing we saw is that UCLA had done an incredible job building a diverse student body and a faculty and alumni base, but the people looking for venture were not diverse. So we started putting in more programs to help diverse founders. And we recognized that our industry was not only overlooking LA and UCLA alumni, they were overlooking all the diverse founders. And we see that in the statistics clearly, yet we were able to bring a great network, our experience as founders. And the final thing that I will say is that as we got to meet more other venture capitalists beyond just the ones that had funded our companies in the past, we recognized that they just thought differently. They hadn't been founders. They hadn't had the highs and the lows coming in the same minute. And they didn't have the empathy and the understanding on how to have the right touch and helping a founder in appropriate ways at the appropriate times to have the best impact. So we were having fun, we were making money, and we were having an impact. And it's so rare in life that you get to do all of those at the same time. So it became inevitable that we wanted to start a venture fund rather than a software company. But it never occurred to us to go join a venture capital group. We wanted to do it our own way and build something again. So we, we started Act One. A lot of those threads I do want to pull on, in, especially the, the fact that there's such a lack of diversity right now that does exist within the venture universe. It's changing slightly, but it's slow, certainly in the founder universe. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But I, I, I think about 2015, and this was at the beginning where we started to see this upward arc of the number of funds coming to market. You guys hadn't come from classically trained venture shops, which, you know, if you look at a lot of the institutional LPs, the fund ones that they were backing were people that left some name brand fund. You had been working together for a couple of years within a university program. At the time, you were a single GP partnership and you were in LA, right? So there's a lot of things that were fundamental tailwinds at the time. Let's just walk through like the first fundraise itself. You had both raised money as founders, but raising a fund I always find is very different. Tell us a little bit about that journey and how you guys navigated through the first fund. We had absolutely no clue and your podcast wasn't online yet. So we just kind of stumbled around and just figured how different could it be. We're just starting a company, happens to be a venture fund. But the reality, it's very different. And we got all sorts of things back then. You know, not so much the solo GP thing, but the I already made an investment in LA. Why would I make a second one kind of a statement, right? We also didn't know like what would work and what didn't. Um, so things like talking about the fact that we were open to founders of all backgrounds turned out to be a negative because investors felt that we weren't going to make them the most money. They didn't recognize that underappreciated founders would actually make them more money, not less money. So, you know, we were actually not only solo GP, not only in LA, not only not coming from a VC firm, but we were talking about things that weren't consistent with the other investments that they were making. So frankly, it was only the 
network that I built up through building a successful public company and the track records that Alejandro and I had with the people that we'd worked with over the years that allowed us to uh, raise the fund. And there were all sorts of things we didn't know. Like we thought to optimize the fund, we wanted to start as a $12 million fund. So we got $12 million of commitment and we sent out the paperwork and only $4 million showed up signed. Uh, and we had to kind of face the question like, well, this is suboptimal. Do we even start this or did we choose the wrong line of work? But we had such conviction in wanting to have an impact on these founders and wanting to do this that we took that journey and we walked off the cliff and said, okay, we're closing on a $4 million fund and we'll just figure out how to make it go. And we started operating and we got those same investors to double down and double the amount of money they gave us by the end of the year and bring in their friends and other people that we met along the way. And we were able to close our first fund at 20 million. It's not an uncommon path where you have a lot of soft commits. And then once you send out the docs, you get a, you get a small fraction of them actually signing up. But you did build that first fund up that ultimately passed that $12 million target. Alejandro, I'm just curious, just given your experiences in, in raising money for companies and then very early in your career as a, as a VC, going through a fundraising path, was there anything, any lessons that you learned or anything counterintuitive about that first fundraise that, you know, you look back now and say, wow, I did not really expect that to, to play out the way it did. Well, first of all, it's just completely different, right? Raising money for a software company versus a venture fund. I mean, you're talking about like, hey, I'm going to build a product for this and these are the resources I need so that I can, you know, I can budget things out. Whereas like here, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go make a pool of 20 investments, none of whom I've met today. But, you know, prom I promise you that I'm going to meet them because I have this kind of network. And so you're, you're, you're kind of doing a lot of this, like, I promise it's going to be like this. So they have to take a bet on you. And, and I think that was one of the most um, very clear things to me is that, wow, like you're you're literally asking people to take a leap of faith on you to manage their money. And this is just a total different way of, of going about it. So I think just getting comfortable in the repetitions at first was a little bit daunting for me, right? Because I didn't come from that quote traditional VC background. And so just just hearing the kinds of questions they were asking, the way that they were looking, um, you know, how they were looking to back managers, it, it became abundantly clear to me that, yes, there, there is a kind of pattern that people are looking for. There is a kind of track record, a kind of path of life, if you will. And it was just plainly obvious that even though Michael and I were a great tandem, we had worked together, he had an incredible track record at UCLA, none of that mattered. It basically was coming back down to the, Oh, cool. But like, did Sequoia like co-invest with you? That's great. But did like battery like follow on? Like until you can drop a name like that for me, it really doesn't matter. And the funny thing was there was actually some of those names that Michael had with his track record at the UCLA VC fund. But then we heard the whole like, oh yeah, but that wasn't your fund. You know, you use the UCLA name. So like literally every excuse on the planet you could ever imagine came out. And so for us, it was about, okay, cool. you got to swallow those jagged pills because they're tough to swallow. And you just have to learn how to keep evolving, keeping these people informed as you continue along, as you progress, like any founder who unfortunately continues. You may be great. You may have all the right background and everything, but you're still overlooked and you still have to somehow stomach that and continue the path forward until you find the right people who are willing to take the bet on you. It is about getting those true believers, those people that do believe in the promise and the fact that the two of you, in, in this case, are going to create a great firm backing great founders. Now, you know, the challenge is it's so forward looking and there's so many things that go into it. As a founder, like 
oftentimes you're going to have a lot of meetings, people turn you down. In, in venture fundraises, I, you know, I've had guests on the show that have met hundreds of LPs during their first fundraise and less than 5% actually committing. Sometimes even it's, it's much, much lower. There's a lot of people listening to the show that are doing it for the first time. And they're going through this very thing where they have a 10 or $20 million target and they're stuck on two. And they're asking them, themselves the question, am, am I even right for this? Is there something wrong? How do you stay motivated? And what is the, what the type of mental model that you need to have to persevere through a first fundraise? You're, you got to be confident in what you're doing. Otherwise, you know, you, you shouldn't be going out there, right? So, so you have that level of confidence going into it. But yeah, like you're, you're getting no's most of the time. And so I, I think the, the key thing is you, you need to find people who are going to believe in you as people, right? That they're just fundamentally going to think you're thinking about something differently and they're willing to take a bet on that. So, you know, the, the notion of, of finding an anchor LP is just is so incredibly important because having somebody ideally a family office or someone who, who has experience investing in these kinds of funds is going to be most helpful because they're going to kind of give you that standard that you can then use to then go to talk to other LPs who maybe are not used to investing in venture funds, right? Or maybe just dabbling a little bit to understand like, this is how we're doing it and this is why we're doing it. So you, you need a little bit of that like early luck, so to speak. I, I'd say one of the other things that you need is you need to be so mindful of making sure that when you do a first close on whatever number that is, one of your first, I'd say three investments has to be an incredible company. And I know that's a really hard thing to figure out, but the reason I say that those first investments are so critical is because they're the ones that are gonna have the most time to mature by the time you get to your final close. And so literally all you're doing is talking about like your companies that you've invested in, highlighting those things along the way. So for us, we had invested in a tiny company called Soxhub. Right. And so this was like, what, investment number two, Michael? Is that correct? Yep. I, it was a second investment that we made, like literally week one. You know, we put in a 200K check and, you know, he were a couple of gentlemen, one UCLA, one Bruin had been, you know, accountants had been working at PwC for 10 years, hated the way that Sox was being done. You know, just it was not meant for a cloud based, you know, collaborative world. So they wanted to build a product around that. Michael was like, oh, yeah. This happened when I was a sitting public company CEO and I thought it would be fixed, but now it wasn't. So we laid down a bet. We tried to get other VCs to back us and they said, why would you invest in a company that only has like 2,000 public companies at the time, right? Like a $10,000 product. That's not venture scalable. That's not That's not going to give you the venture returns. And we thought of that differently. It's like, actually, actually, no, like they need this product now. They're willing to pay for it and they're going to pay more for it. And then once you're in the door, you can expand across the product offering line. So that story we were telling consistently over and over again. And the company started to sign clients, big name clients. And, you know, the kinds of clients that you don't normally see for an early stage company. But what was real evident is that it didn't matter if they had credibility or not. The product was legitimate. Their backgrounds were legitimate. And so it was plainly obvious that when they were talking to the buyer, they knew exactly what they were talking about. So, you know, we had that investment there that was able to gain real traction. By the time we got to the final close, it was just abundantly clear, right? That, okay, this one thing talking about investing in a certain kind of thesis, it's another thing actually laying down the bets introducing those founders to the LPs through whatever little events you're doing, and then giving them the ability to get to know you and some of those founders. That was ultimately part of the sauce that we had created that helped us get to the $20 million by the final close. I think this is where the thesis becomes really important as well. And the thesis can either help you raise or hurt. And I think in our case, it actually hurt our raise ability, but helped us succeed in business. And now, you know, 
it's it's kind of so fundamental but as founders we just look at things differently and we saw this opportunity as a way to get in the door and expand. We saw two accountants, a Trojan from USC and a Bruin from UCLA, you know, and we wanted to show, look, we, we're not just UCLA. Act one is for everybody. So it was a great, you know, early investment for us. But these were two accountants who'd never built a software company before and had no relationships in the Fortune 500 beyond a couple. And we were able to use our community to help get those introductions like I talked about in my example earlier. We were able to help use our experience having built development teams and marketing teams, the sales teams, to help these accountants figure something out. But they were the ones who understood the business problem because they'd spent a decade as internal auditors on the inside and they saw what no one else had seen. And it was something that was a profitable solution to build. And they wanted Act One because they wanted to go build <clears throat> eventually a public enterprise software company. And they knew that as a VC, having somebody who'd been there before and done that was important. And I was the only VC in Southern California that had founded and taken public an enterprise software company. So they wanted us, we wanted them, and, and it came together well. But that thesis of being of founders and looking for companies that are solving true business problems didn't sit well with LPs in general at the time who were looking for these big, massive consumer plays and other things. And one of the things that you look at our track record now a quarter of our fund one investments turned cash flow positive, either on our investment or the one right after. And that's very unusual in venture, but it speaks to looking for real business problems and building practical businesses that comes from Alejandro, in my experience, building companies to cash flow and surviving the 2000 crash, surviving the 2008 crash, and you know the understanding we have of that. And I think it gives us a little bit different mental model going into these investments. It makes a ton of sense to me. Now, going back to what you said a few minutes ago, Alejandro, around the first few investments, you want those investments to really perform because as you continue the fundraise, especially if you're on a traditional 12 to 18 month fundraise, which is still kind of the average for a fund one, you know, you want those companies to shine. Now, the interesting thing, though, on this particular example is you invested in a company with company number two, that wasn't one of those overheated companies where everybody wanted to be in. And a lot of, you know, investors, when they're first starting off, they invest in momentum based companies, because those companies tend to get the most press, they get to the follow on financing, and they, they use those metrics to say, this company that I invested in, I got into it. And nine months later, they raised a series A from benchmark. How did you get comfortable with that risk? Because like, you guys knew that, you know, at $4 million, you wanted to raise more capital, and you took a non consensus bet. It's, a, it's something that everyone talks about. But it's a very, very tough thing to actually do and practice consistently. How do you guys get comfortable with that? And how did you get comfortable so early? In that example, that's also where you get the least amount of money and that doesn't meet your model of what you're trying to get for your ownership targets. It also means that you get the least amount of time with the founder because if they're not willing to take the time to get to know you and really understand the value you're bringing, what makes you think that you're going to then get the appropriate time to help them out by during the fundraiser? You're just basically going to be along for the ride. And that's cool if your model is to not lead and to not care about ownership targets and to kind of spread your bets around. That totally works for that. But that was not our model. And we were not here to just throw money into some round and then never get FaceTime. 
the category that we're investing in, as you know, is the riskiest of the financing chain. So there's no guarantees that anything is going to work out. And what we realized was that the value wasn't the checks that we were writing. The value was the experiences and the knowledge that we had that we were willing to share with the founders. It didn't mean that we were better. It didn't mean that we knew everything, but we were willing to triage stories of what they were going through with things that, that were similar to us and then giving them access to our network of people. So where either if we didn't have the right answer, there was somebody in the network that would. And I think that from the very beginning was just fundamental to the kind of people that we are and the way we think about bets. So I, I generally, I hate party rounds. I'm not a fan of just like, oh, this is a hot company because maybe somebody didn't do their homework and they're just following a name. Or maybe there's something else going on here and you didn't really get the time to understand the founder. And sure, some of these work out and they become hot companies, but I don't live with FOMO. I don't care about companies that I don't invest in. I got really great advice from a top tier GP early on that said, no one is ever going to ask you to pull out your anti-portfolio anti and give them the analysis of that. All they're ever going to ask you is, what did you invest in? How much at what price? And how did you actually help? So if you don't have an ability to build a relationship with the founder, how are they going to be able to you know, give you the reference of, yeah, they actually can provide value and this is what they've done and this is how they've done it over time. So, you know, it, it is about making sure that that it works not only for the founder in terms of what we're looking for, but it works for our model as well. So it, it has to be a match both ways and then getting to the the appropriate uh, ownership targets because as you know, right, like you, you just don't know which one is going to work. So you, you have to be able to make enough investments to, you know, to hedge the risk. And they continue to support all of them, but but merely making sure that the ones that truly figure it out, you're able to continue to get more money in there. And and with the way that these rounds are getting so hot, preempted, especially now, right, post-COVID and everything, it's even more imperative that you truly add value to a founder because they're all trying their best. But the reality is, is, you know, not every fund can get, you know, their their desired check into the next rounds. We've been able to get that to happen majority of the time. Not always. I'm not going to sit here and say it's happened all the time. It hasn't. But a good significant portion of the time because we've just really added a lot of value where, you know, sometimes VCs will get that investment in and they don't do the work. And, and that's not the way that we operate. Right. We know that in order for us to be successful, they got to be incredibly successful. And so we have to be able to give them the most valuable asset we have, which is our time. What you're describing actually is is your mental model of how you work with founders and your founder ethos. And what, what I've always found sometimes is you learn more from the failures than you do the successes. And both of you have worked at companies where, Michael, you took a company public and built a massive enterprise, but you also, as you mentioned, failed in a company. How did those failures shape how you created and developed your own ethos toward how you work with founders? And what are some of the advantages of having those failures and working with founders? And part of why I, you know, start my story with my first startup was a failure. It's like, it's okay. This is part of what happens. This is part of how you learn. And, you know, even the, I, you know, my public company, we went public and then we crashed in the dot-com era. And like many other companies of the year, we went down 99% in our value in one year. Um, most of the other companies at that time went out of business. We found a way to survive and get back and build back up again. And those stories of survival and understanding how to get through the difficult times, as well as how to be successful in the good times, I think is underlying to how we look at the world and, and, and how we invest. But, but fundamentally, it comes back to 
is this a product that's really solving a true business need? Is this an area of investment like e-commerce infrastructure, vertical SaaS and financial payments that is within our history of building companies? And it's not that we have the answers, right? Like when I was doing the IPO, I learned the most by talking to somebody who'd gone public 10 years prior to when I was doing it and somebody else who was doing it 10 days prior to it and being able to kind of triangulate the answer. So as much as possible, when we're working with founders and they're always getting into you know challenges, right? That's part of building a company, we're not able to tell them, hey, here's the answer. We're able to say, hey, yeah, we have empathy. We've been in your shoes before. We've faced that problem. Here are the questions we asked. Here's how we thought about it and how we got out of it. Here's who we asked for advice. And sharing that story is designed to give them the opportunity to figure out with their knowledge of the market, the current world, and this, how are they going to solve their issue and move forward? And sometimes it's just enough to listen. Sometimes it's about, here's some practical steps that you can take. And sometimes it's about the connection to someone who can help dig you out of the hole. So I want to take that maybe to a tactical level. You know, if you talk to any venture firm, they will speak about their value adds to founders, what they do, what's their superpower. But understanding how it works in practice is always helpful for people that are starting off. And so as you think about your work with founders, you're taking ownership, you're spending a lot of time with these founders, helping them build their businesses. Is there something that's worked in particular with the two of you that really drives that type of GP founder relationship and really drives the overall enterprise value of the company? Is it how often you meet with the founders? Is it focusing on one thing? How do you actually consistently provide that where truly if somebody's taking money from Act One? They know exactly what they're going to get. I think it's a couple of different things. Part of it is Alejandro and I are both similar in that we're founders. We're both first-generation Americans. We have a lot of philosophical similarities. We've both had failures and we've both had struggles to build our companies. But we're also very different. We're different in age. We're different in approach. We're different in experiences and backgrounds. And that allows us to give... Uh, multiple views, a, a way to think through certain issues that help. But fundamentally, it really comes back to a founder. And I think you made a point, like we spend a lot of time with our founders, not always. Part of the challenge that founders have with VCs is they spend all their time. And, and we're not trying to be a time suck for our founders. We need them focused on the important things in their business and getting what you know we'd like to call just the appropriate level of interaction. So we're helping at the right moment. We're helping in the right place. We're helping with that customer introduction. We're helping solve a particular issue that they have at the moment and knowing how to sense what those are and what's coming next because we've been on those journeys and we recognize the patterns. That's what helps set us apart. So We've built this incredible network, people who are willing to help. We've built an understanding and an openness to founders of all backgrounds and the unique challenges that they face. And we've been in their shoes. So our advice isn't, hey, go call these 10 people. Maybe one of them can help you after you get to the know them. It's like, no, here's how we dealt with it. By the way, these are the kind of people we look for advice. If you need one, you don't have one in your network. Here it is. This person can help you. You know, you're trying to hire a VP of engineering. You've never even been a VP of engineering. You're a founder. You were an engineer originally. How do you know what that's like? Okay, well, here's how I did it the first time. Here's how I solved it. Here's the mistake that I made in my first VP of engineering and what I learned when I got to my second. So it's a firsthand story of having been exactly in their shoes followed with, and by the way, 
If you want to talk to David, who's the chief architect at Pinterest, who's hired more engineers than anyone else on the planet and thought about things at big scale and also has been a founder himself where he had to do the first line of code, he's available to help you have a conversation about what to look for and maybe even help you on the final interviews if you want. So it's also, though, about knowing when that's too much and the founder just needs to be left alone so they can work. And having had VCs ourselves, we have just a really intuitive sense of what's too much and what's too little. He's exactly right. And I would only add on there because we have a very, we don't have a diversity mandate in our charter, but 70% of our investments are led by women and or minority founders. And one of the things I can tell you is people often just get this wrong. You know, they think that because it's a minority founder, you need to do extra handholding and you got to have, you know, a level of cadence that is different from the white male founders who really get the money and get all the freedom in the world to go make every mistake that they possibly can make and then learn from those mistakes. Diverse founders don't get that same uh, treatment, unfortunately, but they don't need that, right? Like there, there certainly are a group of folks, res- ir- irrespective of their background, who can benefit from a more hands-on level of help. But the majority of them are experienced and have great networks and have education, like all the right things you look for. They just haven't built a company. And so this is about giving them the appropriate amount of capital, giving them the right amount of room so they can learn and grow and being there for them so that when they have questions and challenges, they're able to come to us. So part of our process is making sure that they're open and honest, that we can communicate with them because I don't want to come and bug you all the time. Do you need this? Do you need that? I need you to understand that when you need that, you come to me, you come to us, whether that's a phone call in the middle of the night because you're freaking out, sure, call us, right? Like we're always there for them. And so that approach is, it's kind of that light touch. If we need to do it bi-weekly and you want that, happy to do that with you, but that's not what we're recommending. Everything is always about just making sure that they have the room to learn and grow and know that we're here for them for whatever at any time. It reminds me of another conversation I had with a guest recently who likened his role to portfolio founders as being the sixth man. And that, of course, is a reference to basketball, where a sixth man comes off the bench and plays whatever role the team needs, provides whatever amount of minutes that are needed. And that's really dictated by the lineup on the floor, the team, and the, the coach. And it sounds like you take a very similar philosophy to him. And going back perhaps to another point, actually, which is around team and partnership, the two of you have very distinct backgrounds, experience levels, ways of thinking, and that can work wonderfully within a partnership where you bring diversity of thought and you remove the normal biases that could exist with teams that are more monolithic in nature. But on the other side, it can be really tough to navigate when it comes to things like conflict resolution and the number of conflicts that come up. How do you think about that in ensuring that the distinct backgrounds that you do bring to the table are really conducive to building a long-term franchise, which I know you want to build, and in a way that really allows the firm to get to maximum potential? It starts with that common goal of we both want to change the world, right? Neither of us like, oh, we want to go be venture capitalists and make a ton of money. Yeah, we want to go make a ton of money and change the world. But how you do that and what you think about and what then becomes important is very different. When we first started, we didn't know what were some of the things that we were going to do that were going to change things. We just knew here's how we thought about it, our experience as founders and what kind of VCs we wanted and why that was different than you know what was out there. But you you see it even in just how we approach founders when we first get to know them. 
in the kinds of questions that we ask that are very different. The fact that we often start our calls explaining our backstories and why we're doing this so that the founders that we work with can understand why we're doing this, what we're looking to get from, and making sure they're understanding. We, we had VCs that had very different motivations than we were when we were founders. And we want the founders to understand the motivations of VCs, how that works, and, and bring them together in that way. But we both, because of our backgrounds, because we've both seen those challenges, when we come to conflict resolution, we're not looking at it as conflict. We're looking at it as hearing each other ideas out the same way we build community. We're looking for those different inputs to try and find the better place to go. And it's just allowed us to have a degree of collaboration right from the start that, that's very different. And even though I was a solo GP, I never thought of Alejandro as just someone who was working in the group, right? We were the two of us against the world trying to change something. And we would sit, we had one conversation on a, on a balcony, drinking a little bit of tequila to celebrate the close of our first fund. And the question was like, how are we going to change the world eventually? And it's like, I don't know. But each of the software companies I'd created in the past invented a new business model along the way and new technologies that hadn't been there before. And they didn't always know how that was when it started. But I think you know this might be a good transition to talk about some of the work we're doing to change the venture industry with the diversity rider that Alejandro created, because we're thinking beyond just the impact that we're having on our founders, but how do we actually help our whole industry have a better impact? And it comes to the belief we had from day one, which is that we can make this more accessible and bring a broader network to people and bring more seats to the table, we're going to change the financial results we have because we're going to invest in better founders. Those founders are going to build diverse teams and they're going to be able to be more successful. So we'll make more money as well for RLPs, but also having a more diverse venture industry at the cap table is going to make the long-term change in our industry around us. Without a doubt. And you know, it's music to my ears and I do want to get into that now, but maybe wrapping a bow on what, what I just heard in terms of conflict resolution, you guys had a shared mission that went beyond just investing. And it created a culture of making sure when you're, when you're not seeing eye to eye, it's all about getting it right versus being right. And that does require really shared purpose. And I'm glad to see not only the success of the firm, and I know that your first one's done exceptionally well for your LPs, including some of the companies you mentioned, but also this broader effort of getting more people participating in the asset category and having more, more accessibility to those that didn't grow up in the same networks and didn't go to the same schools. Alejandro, you and I talked about this, I think about a year ago, about this concept of a diversity rider, and it's been adopted by so many great tier one firms. Tell us a little bit about what it is, what inspired it, and more importantly, like, what has it led to since you know, it got released? Yeah, just to finish on the last question, you had one, one comment here because I want to give Michael kudos here. The ability to speak your mind is so important. And so having that open environment to say whatever you need to say because you feel it's important, always with respect, right? But if you feel that the other person isn't understanding, you have to be able to speak up. And until you have that moment, that proverbial, almost like kind of like hands on the table, like, no, you have to think about it in a different way. You're not really getting into the full brunt of what venture is. I just think that that's such a critical part in anyone's career because at some point, 
right? You, you, you have to be able to speak your mind. You have to be able to say, no, I believe this and not just kind of roll over. Whenever I needed to felt that I needed to do that, Michael was always 100% willing and open to listen to me and, and always getting to the point where we're making uh, decisions together. So that's a big shout out to Michael and this environment. So with, with respect to, yeah, the, the diversity writer, it, it's been something that has been an incredible passion of mine. And so to see the success that it's been having, not not for me, but to see how it's impacting a lot of other individuals who are getting into deals that maybe they might not have otherwise, because now there's a number of venture investors who are thinking about how do I bring a different set of diverse networks and folks into these deals in a way that they really weren't thinking about it probably prior to the events of last summer. You know, kind of what inspired the diversity writer was when I was at that moment, when, when George Floyd was murdered, I uh, I went through this like pretty deep grieving process. And, and on that Friday when we were on lockdown in LA and people were looting and all of that, I was sitting in my living room in the dark crying because I just was thinking about like my own journey and my own challenges and my own facings of systemic racism. And you know it's there, but you don't really think about it. You don't talk about it. You just kind of keep pushing forward because that's what you have to do, right? If you're a person of color or, or of a diverse background, it's like, you're, you're not allowed, quote unquote, to to cry about it. You just have to wipe your tears and keep going. But no, this was like this was like a shock to the world, to the system. And it got me to think about, wow, like I'm sitting here building a venture fund, like on the past, I, you know, raised the second fund. There's not very many people who even raised the first fund, much less the second fund. So even though I came, I do not come from privilege. Again, my mom dropped out of school sixth grade, my dad eighth grade, like couldn't be further removed from the quote traditional background of a VC, I still was here riding shotgun in a world that was not meant for me. And it just got to the boiling point. I was like, no, this this cannot be like this anymore. We have to find a way to help other people have the same kind of opportunity that I had, whether that's working with somebody or they want to do it on their own. And the, the thing that always mattered to me that, that makes the most sense is this has to be about getting track record, getting allocated, getting equity, right? If it's not equity, if it's not access, it really doesn't matter. And I know that because it didn't matter to the conversations we were having with LPs in Fund 1 and Fund 2. You know, I really thought that during Fund 2, you know, at the time, the conversation of diversity was picking up more in 2017, et cetera. And then I'd show up to these meetings and it's like, oh, no, just kidding. That was just a way for us to get you in the door. Did you still invest with Sequoia? Did you still get backed by battery? You know, luckily, we did. Right. So we were able to check some of those boxes and get LPs. But how many people have that opportunity to, to be co-invested with these top firms? Not a lot. So the diversity writers call to action was about there's a moment in time where as an investor, we have a level of influence to have a conversation with the founder about the importance of having diversity on the cap table. Not because this is charity and we're doing this to, to feel good about ourselves. No, it is a good feeling, but we're doing this because this is what is going to drive those alpha returns for any venture fund and what is also going to enable any company to have access to a set of diverse networks that are ultimately going to help this company bring in a different set of customers, a different set of folks to tap into for, for hiring resources, and a different set of people who have a different way of thinking, a different type of life that you can then triage your own experiences against theirs and, and not come to this group think, right? You need to have diversity of thought at all levels. And for so long, it's always been about like, 
oh, make sure you have the right hiring practices so you have a diverse employee base and make sure you're now thinking about your diverse board. But when it came to the cap table, it was like, no, 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 no. Don't talk about my cap table. We're never going to share in the equity. No, that that's that's off the table. And it's like, no, like we're done with that. Because if it's not about equity, if you're not getting people on the cap table, they're not going to pay attention. You know, we saw at the UCLA VC fund that even though there was a great network and people were willing to share, it wasn't a for-profit fund. So 15 minutes later, after they had the conversation, they, they could move on and forget about them. And it wasn't any ill intention, but they weren't financially invested specifically on certain companies. And so the idea of the writer came to me there. I talked to Michael about it. He completely encouraged me to go do it. I wrote down this idea of the language. I went and called Dana Settle, who told me that there was something real. And that was the encouragement that, you know, that gave me the confidence to say, okay, this is going to be pushing a boulder up Mount Everest because, you know, one could call this a level of affirmative action in, in the venture industry. And I wasn't going to shy away from that because until we do something different, until we do something that cuts against the grain that is bold, we're never going to change the industry because if it was going to happen. It would have happened by now. The players, the original players would have done something differently and they haven't. Right. And and you can understand why. I mean, life is good when you have the brand name and, and you're at that top tier and, and you can recruit and get everything coming into you. It's not that they don't work, but, you know, there's not an incentive to change, so to speak. And so it's got to come from folks who are thinking differently, who are cutting against the grain. And and, you know, I just I just felt empowered. So what started as an idea in my head ended up being molded together with 10 total VC firms, including Great Cross, um, you know, first round capital, Maveron so incredibly appreciative to these firms to take a leap of faith and you know what i hope would resonate with the industry has far exceeded what i thought would be possible with it and you know it, it's it's been used in hundreds upon hundreds of deals now many deals that i'm obviously not aware of there's over 50 firms that have publicly said they're using it there's probably about another two dozen other firms that are using it that haven't said so publicly um you know because i've heard you know through the wire about these things and so it's just it's wonderful to see that the conversation about diversity and cap table access and equity has truly changed in a way that i mean you know you know it's in here you've been you've been in this game longer than both michael and i in terms of investing so you know this really wasn't talked about on a regular basis um and when it was it would dissipate off into the wind after a few weeks or a few months and we would go back to normal there's so many important things that you just covered, and I, I do think that ultimately what we do need is not only discussion, but real action that drives capital into diverse managers and diverse founders, and things like both the diversity rider, which allows people to participate in and alongside some of these top firms, build their own track records. That ultimately will lead to them raising their own funds and backing underrepresented founders, but also on the LP front, having more capital flow in from LPs to uh, underrepresented managers that are just getting their start. And there are groups like First Close and recently Screen Door Accolade that are putting their money where their mouths are. And so this is all very reassuring. It's still, of course, as you mentioned early and that we still need sustained performance on this. But uh, I am excited to see folks like yourself and others take real leadership roles in uh, driving the next generation of venture led through a wider group that's able to participate. It's been the pleasure and privilege of a lifetime to, to do something that isn't about us, that is completely meant to change the industry in a way that I hope will create generational wealth.
for a number of people who may not have had access, right? We're, we're operating in the most important and best asset class out of all of them, the one that historically drives the biggest returns, but the one that also historically is the one that is off limits to the majority of people out here. So uh, until the day that we can recognize that if we want to change the world, if we want to create generational wealth, it's got to start by getting onto the cap tables, not at the IPO, because I just don't care what size check you're writing at the IPO. You are not going to create generational wealth. That is all happening in the in the earlier rounds over the first 10 to 12 years of the business life of the company. So how do we get people allocated on there? Again, not because it's charity, but because this is going to be a, an incredible value to the company that ultimately will drive returns for the company and the investors. They're going to turn around and, and invest in more diverse founders, more diverse individuals, because it's clear, right? It, it's really people who are coming from these communities that are going to be more willing to take bets of other people coming from those communities that other potential investors maybe who, who don't come from those communities are, are unwilling to do. And so it is a slow change. You know, unfortunately, we all wish that it could happen a lot faster, but it's happening. And I'm incredibly encouraged by it. In any venture fund, you're looking at things over a 10 year time frame. And I think, you know, we're here, you know, one year in. We got over 50 firms that you know publicly using this thing. I know there's a lot more, um, and just to see that we're we're able to make an impact is seriously one of the greatest feelings I've ever had in my entire life. It's incredible. And bringing it back to the founders for a moment, right? Alejandro targeted the VCs, and the VCs are the ones writing the term sheets, and that's why putting it in. But it's been the founders that have reacted so positively to this because they want to have these conversations. They know that to build a great company, they need diverse teams, they need diverse networks, and they're seeing the benefit of that by having that diversity on their cap table, helping them build better, stronger companies, and they want that dialogue. So, you know, my hope is that eventually this becomes standard across our entire industry, and that's going to be led eventually by the founders expecting this and demanding it. No, I, I agree completely. And, you know, I'm excited to work on this with you guys. Again, thanks for being on the show. Always good to see you. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Samir. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our episode with Michael and Alejandro. To learn more about them, Act One Ventures, or the Diversity Rider, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download, and while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 